This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellums. The Fayetteville Police Department hosted a public dedication and community tour today of its new public safety campus, which opened on May 1st. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich toured the law enforcement facility last week, and she brings us this story. Sergeant Anthony Murphy, public information officer for Fayetteville Police, met with us in front of the newly opened headquarters. Yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of based off of the rest of the buildings, the, the landmark buildings here in Fayetteville, the Walton Arts Center and Theater Squared and the library. You know, we kind of have a, a theme of a, a grand entrance with the, the big windows, and I think it's a, you know, kind of an iconic building now here in Fayetteville when you drive by on the, on the bypass. The new police campus is located near Interstate 49 Porter Road exit, renamed Stephen Carr Memorial Boulevard. Well, Stephen Carr was a, a police officer here at Fayetteville that was assassinated in our back parking lot on December 7th, 2019. And if you look around this police department, you see that it's, it's gated and it's very secure parking for all of the employees here at the Fayetteville Police Department. Inside the foyer, a facilities crew bolts signage to the wall in preparation for the dedication of the 82,500 square foot facility. The two-story glassed-in lobbies filled with inviting upholstered seating. Fayetteville Police Chief Mike Reynolds' spacious new quarters are perched above the main entrance. And so, uh, you know, folks can see that I'm up in my office and I can see, uh, you know, some of our community members that are down uh, in our lobby as well. So. Um, you know, I guess this is where the magic happens. Compared to the former 8,000-square-foot police department in South Fayetteville, this new facility promises to enable Fayetteville's police force to better protect and serve the community. Chief Reynolds guides us through the administration suite with offices for senior command, criminal investigators, patrol officers, and compliance staff. Lieutenant Pope, his main responsibility is internal affairs. Uh, so to make sure that everyone in the police department is, uh, is behaving in a professional manner, uh, anyone that, you know, uh, has a complaint uh, against any member of my agency can lodge the complaint with me, and then I assign that to uh, Lieutenant Pope, and then he will investigate that, or he will have one of our internal investigators investigate that complaint uh, fully. The decor is muted blues and grays, including carpeting in office areas and brushed silver linoleum hallway tiling. Beyond administration is the main two-story staff entry, featuring a broad stairway and stainless steel railing leading from the gated personnel parking lot. The entire facility is ADA compliant as well as LEED Silver certified. Reynolds points to a wall emblazoned with department iconography and a mission statement. And you'll see the very last uh, sentence there, uh, reducing opportunities of a crime to occur. That, you know, that's our responsibility to try to reduce those opportunities. So uh, in designing this particular area right here, it really fits into another pillar of what I tried to accomplish with this building, and that was officer uh, health, wellness, and resiliency. Uh, you'll see that it's very open, uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of a fun area, kind of a really nice place for, for our employees to first enter when they come into the building. So I hope it provides some energy as they start their day uh, of work here. And as you walk through the facility, you'll also see that we really wanted to bring a lot of natural light in the facility as well. And that's what we've done with these big bay windows that we're standing in front of right now and throughout the building. Something that we didn't have in our facility that we were in for 30 years was we didn't have any natural light that came in. And certainly I think that that is really helpful, uh, you know, for the energy uh, and the wellness of our employees. We enter Central Dispatch, a large second floor hall filled with natural light where trained operators 24-7 field 911 calls and complaints. A lot of technology. There's, uh, you know, screens that surround the top of the room. Um, those screens have surveillance cameras uh, for this facility, but they also have surveillance cameras throughout the city. Um, we have some that are located on Dixon Street. We have several that are located in our city-owned parking garages as well. And the dispatchers have the ability to watch 
the body-worn cameras of the officers in live uh, form. And so if they're dealing with a critical incident, they can see exactly what the officers are dealing with and then relay that to responding officers or to supervisors so we can better handle the situation at hand. And what you have around the room here is you have several dispatch stations uh, and you can see that it's each dispatch station uh, has eight monitors that the, that the telecommunicators are responsible for. Red lights above each dispatch workstation switch on, indicating calls in process. Reynolds says the team manages up to 55,000 calls a year, 45,000 of those 911 emergencies. The dispatch center has an onboarding training facility, a private recovery and lactation room, a full kitchen break room with the north-facing balcony. Just get a breath of fresh air because they deal with a lot of things that uh, are very stressful critical incidents, you know, a lot of uh, uh, traumatic incidents that they have to deal with. And so we're always looking out for their welfare and their well-being as well. The new headquarters features a media room and several IT training rooms. This is a computer lab training room, and it uh, would also serve as a emergency operations center. As you look around the rooms, you'll see several outlets that have, um, that are colored red. Those red colored outlets are on our generator. So if we have an ice storm, if we have a tornado, if we have a man-made disaster like a bombing, uh, then we could bring all of the heads from uh, Washington County into the city of Fayetteville into this room and game plan on how we would deal with that critical incident. We walk by a wall filled with yearbook photos of police and canine personnel tracing back to 1994, including a rookie photo of Chief Reynolds. A long sloping corridor leads us onward into an underground facility. So this is the training suite, if you will, that we're walking down into. And so we're going seven feet below uh, the initial grade of the police department. This facility runs north and south. Um, it's a very secured facility. It has cinder block on both your right and your left. Uh, and it has a double cinder block wall that's concrete filled on it as well. Um, this particular suite uh, has a um, defensive tactics room that we just passed. Um, that's where our officers can go and they can practice defensive tactics, de-escalation skills, um, so they can minimize the amount of force that they have to use in a given situation to reduce the harm not only to the officers, but also to the suspects that they encounter as well. Down the hallway to the left, we have a simulator room. And so we're in the uh, process of buying a virtual reality simulator that the officers can put on like an Oculus system, if you will. And three officers at a time could participate in that virtual reality training. And we can draw up any scenario that you can imagine. And through that simulation, we can um, basically with the officers, we can judge how they do and critique how they do and try to improve how they would respond into a given situation once it becomes reality out on the streets in Fayetteville. Reynolds takes us into a massive underground firing range, currently empty. One of only two in Arkansas, Fayetteville PD, have practiced shooting at an outdoor range in southeast Fayetteville since the 1960s. This new gun range abates noise pollution as well as environmental ammo lead pollution. You can see that it's 50 yards, it's 10 lanes, it's shotgun rifle and handgun rated. So we shoot rifles from the 50 yard line in and then we shoot shotguns and handguns from 25 yards and in. The beauty of this facility here is that it's very safe. Our officers can shoot 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so they're not disrupting anyone in the neighborhood. Uh, they're not disrupting anyone in Fayetteville, and it's safe that a projectile is not going to get outside of this facility as well. The total cost for the new police headquarters, he says, was around $44 million, with nearly $37 million provided by a capital bond issue approved by Fayetteville voters in April 2019, indicating major community support construction started up in early 2021 during the worst of the COVID pandemic. Chief Reynolds says he's been involved in the project from startup design to completion. You know, in talking with, with Mayor Jordan initially uh, on the conceptual design of this facility, uh, we knew that we were going to need 80,000, 82,000 square feet. And at that 
particular time, uh, the square footage equated to approximately $36, $37 million. And so that's what the bond was asked for. So yes, I was involved from the very beginning of this project. So I've lived and breathed it for the last five years. So from, from conceptual design, planning, up to uh, construction, and, and then completion as well. And looking back? So I was hired in July of 1993. That was the year and the month that we moved into our facility downtown. It was the retrofitted J.C. Penney building. And I always like to share my experience as a new officer walking into that facility with my first job. I'm wide-eyed. Uh, as I went past the men's locker room, which is a brand new building, they took me downstairs into that facility into a uh, employee hallway, if you will, that was accessible by all employees. And there was about 10 lockers in that hallway. And that was where I started at with the Fayetteville Police Department storing my uh, equipment into those lockers in a public hallway. So the reason I like to, to, to shed light on that and use that as an example, it was because we underbuilt that facility in 1993. And it was my job, I felt like, to make sure that we re didn't repeat that mistake with the taxpayer's money. And I wanted to make sure that we built a facility that was not only capable of handling our uh, capacity currently, but our capacity for the next 20 to 30 years as well. And I think we've accomplished that with this facility. Chief Mike Reynolds says this new police department will enable increased recruitment and retainment of diverse officers and staff. The old headquarters located south of Fayetteville's town square will be repurposed by the city, although a section of police quarters will be maintained on this site for staging during large downtown events. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Later this hour, Eureka Springs is hosting a blues party. There was a real desire to bring the blues back to Eureka Springs. So when we uh, put, put the call out to the, to the community, the community answered the call. A small town takes advantage of its unique assets to stage a citywide blues festival. More about that in today's second half hour. Historic Cane Hill presents Nyloke and Beyond 20th Century Swirl Art Pottery, now through July 8th. This exhibition features the swirled mission wear and pieces inspired by the Arkansas-made Nyloke Pottery. The Historic Cane Hill Gallery is open Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. and by appointment. More at historiccanehillar.org. Support for KUAF comes from Westwood Gardens, a family-owned garden center with four locations in northwest Arkansas. Westwood plants are grown locally and offer a variety of annuals, perennials, hanging baskets, and more. Westwoodgardens.com for information. This is Ozarks at Law. Wendy Echeverria received her master's degree in journalism from the University of Arkansas. Her thesis for that degree, a podcast series titled Inspirando el Futuro, Stories about Latino Leaders in Northwest Arkansas. We'll be sharing excerpts from each episode of the series over the next few weeks on Ozarks at Large. First, though, we're going to learn more about Wendy and her desire to produce the podcast. She recently sat down with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I remember one day I went to this life program. The life program is a part of NWAC. Mm -hmm. And I went to the program, and I remember I was doing, like, this skit. It was, like, a, a drama skit. And I remember Jose coming up to me and asking me if I wanted to be become a part of the, Link, or the Limke Journalism Project. And so he started talking, talking to me about journalism. I was intrigued. And so I decided to go into the Limke Journalism Project, and that's where it all started for me. Um, I loved the way that I was, you know, I love the way that I was given the opportunity to tell stories, and I think that's where my passion kind of, like, started um, in the Limke Journalism Project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, explain for those who may not be quite so familiar with what the Limke Journalism Project is, what does it do, and kind of how did that empower you to keep moving forward? Yeah, so the Limke Journalism Project was started at the University of Arkansas, and what they do is they basically go to different universities, not universities, but high schools, and they recruit students to become a part of this program for, I think it lasts about four weeks or six weeks. I'm not really sure what, what the length of the program, but it lasts a few weeks. And so every single Saturday, students will come and they'll basically um, write stories or they'll do something in the journalism world. 
And so um, that program back then, I am pretty sure they still do it, but they were targeting Hispanics and minority um, group uh, students. And so that's basically what they do. And at the end of the program, once you're done and you've completed everything, they offer a scholarship mm. for, for a few students. But yeah, so it's essentially a program for high school students who may want to go into journalism or just want to learn about journalism. And so for you, you, you decided to go into studying journalism. Um, talk a little bit about what you did uh, after graduating college. So after graduating at the University of Arkansas, I decided to work at um, KNWA, and I was a web producer for a few months, uh, and then I decided to leave news and go into public relations. So I, ba I went back to the university, and I actually worked with the electrical engineering department, and I loved it. I loved public relations, and a few years into doing that, I decided that I wanted a master's degree. I wanted something more. I've always wanted a master's degree. It's, it's always been my dream, but um, the thought of, you know, how I was going to do it financially was something that was always stopping me. Um, so one day I sat down with my mom, and we talked about it, um, and I decided, you know, at that moment when my mom told me, you know, I'm, I'm going to support you, I'm going to be here for you, that I would do it. We'll talk about this here in a little bit, but yeah. a lot of a lot of the work that you've done through your podcast is is talking about the empowerment of Latina women, and mm -hmm. and that that's a very good example <laughs> of that, right? Yeah. Your mother, your mother saying like, I want you to do this, I want to support yeah. you in doing this. What is your family's relationship with? education and higher education. So that's actually one thing that my mom has always instilled in me. She's always told me to go to school. And the reason why is because she wasn't given that opportunity. Um, back in El Salvador, where she's from, my grandma was a single mom and she couldn't afford, um, you know, the uniform and the books and supplies for her to go to school. So my mom had to drop out of school at a young age. So when, you know, my mom had my sister at a young age, she decided to come to the U.S. And so from that moment, my mom has always made it her mission to give my sister, um, as well as me, a, a better opportunity. And so, you know, seeing the way that she is today, like I can, I can see why she's been so um, persistent in, you know, in me. Um, and how do I say this? I, I can see why she's been so persistent in, you know. Pushing you. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like trying to think of like, how do I say this? So yeah. persistent and push, yeah, so persistent in pushing me to receive a degree. Um, and I think getting this master's degree, I can see like she's she's just so proud, right? Um, and I doing this whole program, going back to school, getting the master's degree, to be honest, it's for her in a way because she wasn't able to to get that degree. Um, she wasn't able to, to finish school and she still wants to, right? To this day, she's, she talks about it. She, she talks about wanting to become like a teacher or a business, um, woman, which she already is. She has her own business, um, right now, but she still talks about it. And education to her is so important. It's something that's always been important to her. And she's really supported my sister, um, as well as me in, in receiving, all of the, the degrees that we, we want, essentially just want, to be honest. The University of Arkansas's master's program with journalism is, is kind of unique in a way that, that many of the students uh, who pursue a master's in journalism um, often do project-based theses mm -hmm. instead of a traditional, you know, 50, 7,500-page paper. Mm -hmm. um, I am a recent graduate of, of the master's program, yes. and, and you and I have something very, <laughs> yes. you know, very much in common with each other in yes. that we both did podcasts mm -hmm. for our master's thesis. So much fun. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about your thought process, thinking about, you know, I think you, you, you know, you reached out to me pretty early on about, yeah. you know, you were interested in doing something like this. What did it look like for you and why, why did you think that doing a podcast was the best avenue to share this kind of story? 
I always wanted to do a podcast. Like you said, I reached out to you at a, um, a pretty early stage in the process. Um, but I think what really nailed it down for me was when I actually sat down with a Latina. She, uh, at the time, I think she still is the director of sales for a company. And we sat down and we talked and she, the way that she articulated her ideas, it just hit me so in, a, in such a profound way that I felt like other Latinas needed to hear this. And I felt like, you know, yes, I could tell a story, but it would be so much more impactful if she were able to tell it herself. And so I had the idea from the beginning of, of wanting to partner up with these Latinas and to tell their stories. Um, my, I've known my mom's story since I've been a kid, and so she's always impacted me. I've always been, I've always admired my mother and her strength and her courage. And so there are so many other Latinas who don't have, may not have a similar story as as my mom does, but or as my mom's, but they have an impactful story and they have something to say. And so from the beginning, I knew that I wanted it to be about my community because I've always been passionate about my community. I love my community. I love being a Latina. I love being a Hispanic woman and a woman of color. I love it. And so I knew that I wanted it to be about Latinos or Latinas. And, you know, when I went through the process of thinking, okay, um, I want this to be about leadership because I actually wanted I wanted to be a leader. So in a way, I did this selfishly, but at the same time, not selfishly because I wanted to empower other people. But I was thinking, what what do I what do I want? And so one of the things that I kept thinking is, I want to become a leader. I want to learn how to become a leader, and I want others to learn to become leaders. And so then I decided to kind of just. M- put the two together, um, Latinos and Latinas and leadership, and then that's when I narrowed it down to Latinas, women. Because, to be honest, I know that there's struggle, right? They struggle with with things, whether that be internally or um, systemic issues, whether that be, whether a Latina, you know, deals with systemic issues or internal issues, there's issues, and I wanted to to talk about that within this podcast. So, so... Tell me the name of the podcast and kind of what's the elevator pitch when you're when you're sharing someone when you're sharing with someone the idea for this, yeah. you know what do you tell them? Oh, it's hard <laughs> because it's so it's such a complex podcast. It's so hard to like pitch it, mm-hmm. but so it's called Inspirando el Futuro: Stories about Latina Leaders in Northwest Arkansas. So Inspirando el Futuro translates to inspiring the future. So my elevator pitch, if I needed to pitch it, I would say that's exactly what I wanted to do, inspire the future. The people in this podcast, I truly believe, have have inspired me, and I truly believe that they can inspire others as well. Um, This whole podcast is to empower Latinas to believe in themselves and to understand that they can do anything and if they want a leadership role go for it even through the obstacles through the challenges that they may go through they can do anything and that's exactly what I what this podcast is all about just empowering Latinas and showing that through people's personal stories something that really stuck out to me as I was listening to this was there are a few, you know, traditional what we would consider leaders, right? We're looking mm-hmm. at business leaders, we're looking yeah. at, you know, people who are executives, but that's not every story. Yeah. Um, that seemed intentional in mm-hmm. in in your thought process of showcasing that leadership is not just a, a title on a business card. Yeah, and it was intentional. So I had um, Dr. Damari Bonilla Rodriguez. She wrote a dissertation on Latinas in leader in leadership, and so I read it, you know, before doing my podcast. And I invited her to become a part of my podcast or be a guest on my podcast. And she actually made that statement of she does not associate title or leadership with title. And that impacted me, kind of just moved everything for me. And and it made me realize that it's true. That statement is so true. Leadership should not be associated with with title. I mean, it can be, right? Um, But there are leaders all over Northwest Arkansas. You know, some people are volunteering. Others are preachers. Other people are students, you know. 
people are leaders within their space, right? Um, and so that's something that I really wanted to to kind of embrace and showcase as well in this podcast. And that's why I decided to bring in moms. My mom's a leader. And so I wanted to showcase her as a leader, but then I also wanted to showcase other moms who are stay-at-home moms. And because at times people may question them or not see them as leaders when they are. They're leading their kids, you know, to success. My mom has done that for me. I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to, like, you know, be prideful or anything, (laughs) but I'm so, so grateful for her leadership and her guidance that, you know, I'm here today, to be honest, getting my master's degree because she supported me through, throughout my whole life. Um, and she's never stopped. Hmm. I get emotional. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, where we are politically right now, there's a lot of, um, abstract ideas around the kind of people who may come from Latino or Hispanic countries to America, that there's this idea that um, they don't belong here or that they're not welcome here. Um, As I hear your story and I hear the stories of so many really empowering women in this, um, it's just a really pleasant reminder that these sort of topics are a lot more nuanced than Mm -hmm. I think we're often willing to give the mind space for, if that makes sense. And I think it's really wonderful that you're able to kind of dive into this in such a way through the, the medium of audio. One of the things that really sticks out to me is just hearing the individual voices. And it's, it's not just a person from El Salvador, but mm-hmm. it's it's a literal person's voice that you're <laughs> yeah. hearing who talks about yeah. their journey and their you know struggles and their you know empowering moments. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear people talk about immigrants in an abstract way, um, what do you hope that they will understand? into this sort of way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the one thing, though, with um, the Latin American culture, or not culture, but the Latin American community, so the population is growing so much because of births rather than immigration. But um, when people talk about immigrants and they hear about, you know, or they hear this podcast, what I'm hoping that they'll take away is that they're people. They have desires. They have dreams. They're not coming here to harm anyone. (laughs) They're coming here for an opportunity, for the American dream. Um, And what I wanted to do is I wanted to give a voice and a face to this community, right? Um, There's a lot of stories out there about Latinos, Latinas, and Hispanics. But what I wanted to do with this podcast is I wanted to go in depth, and I wanted to showcase my community. And I feel like... I did that in a way, um, but it wasn't just me. It was these women. They were vulnerable. They opened up about things that might have been hard to open up about. Um, but what I want people to take away when they hear this, if they they're thinking of immigrants, is you know we're human, right? We have our, our desires and and what motivates us to to move to a new country, not knowing the language. Um, not having any money at times, um, is the thought of having a better life, having an opportunity, and not just for ourselves, but for our families. Um, so I'm hoping that when people think of, of immigrants, that they think of themselves and, and of what they want for their families, because mm-hmm. we're all the same, right? Yeah. There's no difference. Here at KUAF, uh, we're going to distribute and uh, and bring our listeners this podcast. I'm really excited that we get to do that. Um, what does it mean for you to be able to have this podcast distributed in an avenue like public radio? Oh my gosh, it's a dream. <laughs> it's an honor. Like, honestly, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It's such an honor uh, for me to to be able to partner up with you guys. I think that, you know, I admire the work that you do that you all do and again it's such an honor for me you know I'm right now I'm questioning myself like why why <laughs> like, you know but I'm so honored and so grateful and I'm grateful that you guys are helping me get these stories out to be honest
and we will share an excerpt from the first episode of the podcast series Inspidando El Fortoro, stories about Latina leaders in northwest Arkansas, on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore talked with Wendy Echevera earlier this month, and we will continue to hear excerpts through the month of June. Do you have an old car sitting around, and are you looking for a hassle-free way to get rid of it while making a tax-deductible charitable contribution? Donate it to KUAF. We work with CARS, Charitable Adult Rides and Services, to provide you with this unique way to support our programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE. That's 855-500-7433. Or visit careasy.org and schedule a pickup. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. This fall, the Fort Smith Symphony turns 100. The 2023-24 season will focus on the observation while celebrating the present and future as much, if not more than, the past. Last week, John Jetter, the musical director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony, came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to talk about the centennial season. So uh, we decided, well, what would be a great season? What would be celebratory? You know, what's, what can we do that kind of represents where we are and where we're headed? So I think, I think we've got a cool season planned, yeah. So do you, do you try to look back, forward? How do, you, how do you kind of form what is a 100th season? Well, I think generally we're looking forward to kind of or I, uh, and spending a little bit of time saying, well, here's where we are in terms of the sort of concerts we can present. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a, a tip of the hat as to where we are in terms of we are in the South, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're in the South last time we checked. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we have a, a cool season. Our, our official 100th anniversary concert takes place on September 9th. And um, one of the features of the 100th anniversary is we have a composer in residence. His name is Patrick Conlon. And he has, he was, has been commissioned to write a piece he's calling Time Flies, and it's the official 100th anniversary piece. And we want it to be very celebratory. So that concert uh, features Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on a theme by Paganini, which is awesome, and uh, An American in Paris. Oh, and uh, using the new, not that anyone's going to necessarily notice, but we're using the new critical edition. So there's some nice, fun changes for the orchestra. And ending with Bolero. Oh, which, wow. Which is, is a really cool piece. I mean, everyone knows the piece. And I think it's uh, uh, there's quite a bit of genius in that work. It's just, it's so, uh, it's so fun. So we do that. And then we have another, uh, not really part of the season, but actually everyone can come to it. We have a free concert. Uh, celebrating uh, not only our 100 years, but the 100 years of ArcBest Corporation. Uh, and they've been incredible supporters, of course, a huge in the River Valley. And we're going to be a con- giving a concert at 5 p.m. on uh, Sunday, October 7th, in front of the ArcBest building. And uh, that will include a, a piece that uh, is going to have some different titles, but I think the title for that concert is the ArcBest Fanfare. And actually, uh, Patrick is writing a piece for that, which will be very cool. So then we, uh, again, tip our hat to the South. We do a uh, country hit Songs from Nashville concert in October. And uh, we have two terrific vocal soloists. But we're also performing music from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And to hear that live is just so cool. <laughs> and a few dollars more, both uh, Ennio Morricone score is just right. great stuff. Um, then we have our Earquake Schools concerts. Uh, then we have our holiday concert in December. On March 2nd, we have a kind of a blowout concert where we're doing a piece called Phase Change, again by Patrick Conlon, Appalachian Spring, and Pines of Rome. So it'll be a really huge thing. Uh, actually, the two days after that, this is not a public thing, but we will be making yet another commercial recording. This is all of uh, Patrick Conlon's music. Oh. So it's going to be very cool. It'll be our first recording of a comp- living composer, uh, and we're, we're excited about that. And then uh, we close April 20th with Star Trek Into Darkness, which is a terrific movie. And just, I mean, just a great film score. Uh, Michael Giacchino just did an amazing job. And to hear that, you know, hear that live with the film is great. What I love about having a resident composer for the season and, and what he's doing, the Arc Pass Fanfare, if that's mm-hmm. yes. you know, the title, um, it reminds me of, you know, 
newspapers used to have their own march, right? John Philip Sousa wrote the Washington Post March. Right. And that's right. That's right. I like that sort of idea. Yeah, and he's he's also uh, our first experience with Patrick was uh, with a piece called Wub Wub Wub, which was written for uh, our uh, school's concerts. It's uh, inspired by EDM uh, dance music. Ah. yeah, and dubstep music. Right. So, and there was there was a first movement, and then it turned into a, a full concerto for uh, uh, clarinet and violin. So we'll be doing that at the school's concert. So Patrick's music is pretty prevalent throughout the season. It's a great music. It's loads of fun. And then we'll, we'll have sort of worked through all of it. So then when we actually do the recording, we will have done just about, I think, all the pieces except one we will have done uh, in concert. So that'll be a really cool project. Will he be on hand when you're recording it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've left something out. He's our principal second violin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's uh, he's based in Oklahoma City. He has a terrific recording studio uh, on faculty uh, at uh, Oklahoma. Oh, gosh. I forget which university. Um, and he's, you know, he's involved in new music uh, ensemble, music studio. And uh, he's it's actually getting really busy as a composer. Uh, and of course, he's a performer. Uh, so, and we've worked with him on a number of projects. And uh, he's even at the, the recent recording that we did. He was helpful with uh, some of the music preparation and some of that. How did that recording go? Uh, turned out well. I, I I believe it turned out great. I haven't heard any of it yet. I, I'll probably hear the first edit here pretty soon. But yeah, that was a huge project. And I believe, uh, knock on wood, that'll be released before the end of the calendar year. That's the plan, I believe, on Noxos. And that was uh, uh, our season closer of music of Lewis Ballard. And uh, it was a huge project. Boy, that music was uh, a challenge. But the orchestra did a great job. We had a huge orchestra on stage. And uh, it's exciting. Um, there's a lot of interest. And I think uh, we're real happy we did it. A few, a few more gray hairs, but <laughs> um, we also are doing in schools programs. We we do we always do uh, earquake earquake. That's not in school, but uh, uh, symphony in the schools, cool cats. We're also starting a cool program. cats is jazz is jazz, yeah. And uh, symphony in the schools is for third graders. Cool cats is for fourth graders. It's all our schools in our area, and then we're starting a uh, second grade program called Bluegrass Live, and it features the Crumbs. And for second graders, what they need to know about music, besides enjoying it, is that all music tells a story. And that's a great genre to, to do that. Also, the Crumbs have a number of original pieces that have to do with Arkansas history. Mm -hmm. So we get a little bit of that thrown in, which I think would be great. And you've collaborated with that Yeah, with those band. guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, before, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and they're a lot of fun. And we're continuing. Our chamber music series was really successful. So we have three more uh, chamber music programs for the year. We have uh, the Cavalli String Quartet. They're based in Dallas. They're mostly Fort Smith Symphony members. Um, although I don't think they have a name, but um, we have two of our uh, orchestra percussionists who I said, I want you to put together a real crazy, weird percussion ensemble. Uh, concert, so that's what they're going to do. And then Urging Kong and Shell and Lester will give, be giving a combination piano-violin recital. And these are at, uh, one of the performances is at the Peak Center. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Part of the Fort Smith School District. Exactly. And we have, uh, we're, we're working on the, oh, and one is at uh, uh, the Bakery District at the Mill area, and then the other one's to be determined. So we're trying to pick different places. So that, that went really well this year. So, yeah, we've got a lot. Uh, I think we have a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> I think you do, too. <laughs> Where can people get tickets? Uh, FortSmithSymphony.org. And our site is mostly up uh, for the coming year that has everything that you need to know. And uh, the I just want to mention for most of the concerts, as you can hear from the repertoire, the orchestra is huge, about 100 members. So we're, we're enjoying that. And we are fortunate to be continuing the after parties. So you can come and get your uh, either your physical ticket or your digital ticket. It's good for a beverage across the street at the uh, Bakery District. And we always have live music there. So it's a chance to uh, just kind of have a musical evening and to enjoy music and to hang out with friends. Some of the concerts have intermissions. Some don't. 
uh, or there's shorter intermissions. So the idea is that that post-concert uh, event is really very much part of the evening. Uh, also, I don't have all the details yet, but there will be, after the season opener, there is a 100th anniversary event. Um, I don't think it's really a f- – I think it's a big party. Um, I don't think there's I don't think there's much in terms of a fundraiser. I mean, there's a fee to pay for the evening. And um, a lot of people haven't noticed it, but our theme for the year, you know, it's 100th anniversary, but our, our little tag word is rave. Rave? It's rave, yeah. So the idea is, I think most people go, oh, rave, yeah, like people when they rave about a concert, yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, I also like the other meaning, <laughs> this crazy, you know, drunken wild party with lasers and, right. and, and yeah, crazy things going on. So there won't be that much of that, but we want that slight uh, feel. I got you. Yeah, yeah. So September 9th is the, the initial concert of the season. Is there a date that you consider the 100th anniversary, like the incorporation or the first concert? Uh, or Well, usually the first, as we can tell, going back as far as we can in the past, the first concert tended to be like in you know, August, September time gotcha. frame. So this kind of works for this. Yeah, so uh, the orchestra was founded in 1923 by Catherine Price Bailey so uh, and her husband, uh, William Worth Bailey, was the concertmaster. I don't know how that worked. He actually was blind. So I don't know, and I don't know if that happened later on in life, but um, the orchestra just was real tiny in the beginning and very slowly progressed. There was a strong connection uh, actually with the U of A up here uh, after the Second World War, and um, it just kind of, you know, slowly grew. Maybe only gave a few concerts a year. Sure. So, yeah. Well, congratulations on making it to 100 years. Thank you. Here's to the next however many years that... Yeah, at least we're around. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think it's uh, very exciting. And um, we're trying to, as much as we can, uh, present an orchestra that does a lot of different things. I had a had a really nice talk. Uh, I, I guess I can mention another station as a WFMT in, in Chicago. Chicago. Oh yeah, my gosh! Yeah. yeah, I wasn't in Chicago. Yeah, but uh, I think I'm going to be on there. Sounds classical show oh fantastic yeah. and uh been on there once before and the subject was and i appreciated being asked was about you know where the orchestra what the orchestra is supposed to be doing and i know well, we love uh orchestral music classical music but there's so much literature and uh, if you look at our season we're actually if you if you like time everything that we're doing we're actually doing more other types of music you film and mm-hmm. holiday music and uh western yeah com- century composers yeah. yeah so and i just think the future is is a, a much different than we've thought of for the last you know 100 years and th- we're starting to see more and more of that uh in the orchestra world it's some some places you know it's change so some places are more interested in that change than others. But I was really, am really excited about it. And as our recording projects have kind of shown, um, there's so much music out there. Oh my gosh! And so much that isn't available. Right, it's not available, and it's terrific music, right. and that has a connection to us. Or uh, if you're have, a, if you're, a, I don't know. If you're with an orchestra in Idaho, I'm sure there's a connection there. It's about it's about maybe spending a little bit more time on um, what's local, really. Right. Yeah, because the orchestra world is always about, isn't it? Always about all oh, the soloists is from you know New York or oh the the conductors from England or whatever. And you know there's, uh, we do that to a certain degree, maybe with uh, a lot of things. But uh, I think it's real important to, especially a, an orchestra that for some people is such a foreign thing to have a, a legitimate local connection and you can find that in in so many places across and that the just becomes exponential right i mean exactly you celebrate the local connections that influences perhaps more composers who could be from the area in yeah. the future yeah and you know that was our intent with uh when we've talked you know many many times about florence price i mean that was really our intent and look what happened you know mm-hmm. it really was instrumental in starting this huge this huge chain change and now she's getting her music's played all over the place all over the place and all the time yeah so kind of hoping i don't want to jinx anything but kind i have a feeling that the ballard will have a similar effect because some of them well it's all great music 
But um, there's just, yeah, it, it, would, it works so well on uh, concert programs. And also, one of the pieces was uh, that we recorded, performed and recorded, The Four Moons. I think every ballet company should be doing mm-hmm. it. It's a 22-minute ballet, and it has you know, a Native American theme, and it also recognizes these uh, hugely famous uh, ballerinas who were legit ballerinas in the ballerina world, ballet world. Will that be also a physical yeah. copy? We'll we'll be able to hold yeah the ballet yeah, stri- yeah yeah streamed and and Good. still physical copies yeah yeah physical copies are kind of coming back LPs and yeah. CDs a little bit yeah but yeah you'll st- you can we'll be Excellent. able to stream it anywhere Excellent. absolutely fortsmithsymphony.org yes thank yes. you John. yeah thank you John Jetter is the musical director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony our conversation took place in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at Her Set, HerSound.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The inaugural Eureka Springs Blues Party includes, of course, the blues, but also blues-adjacent music. A festival of blues, funk, rock, and Americana-tinged music will begin June 1st. More than a dozen stages, from the largest in town at the Odd to some of the most intimate, will host performances. Last week, we managed to corral three people instrumental in designing the event, Jack Moyer, Mary Howes, and Gina Rambo, while they had a quick break in their prep work. Eureka Springs uh, is sort of uh, centered around the odd, but in the downtown district, uh, really heavily club-based. You know, we have uh, over 30 shows, over 15 venues. Uh, So we really needed an angle where Eureka Springs had an identity. And, you know, knowing the past history um, of the the Blues Festival, you know, and seeing how people really enjoyed it, you know, they they bounce from club to club and they they come to to have a party. So it seemed to be uh, fresh, uh, a fresh face, um, and it paired what really happens in Eureka Springs, because uh, you know we don't have a big festival stage. The odd is is good size, uh, but the Basin Park is a is a two hundred and fifty seat venue, and that's number two on the space. So you know, we we really uh, we sort of like the feel of the blues party because uh, it pairs to the experience. All right, let's talk about the performers because this is a this is a heck of a lineup for. I mean, still the official first Eureka Springs Blues party. Who who are we going to hear and and how'd you get them? Uh, Mary, I think can <laughs> can uh, uh, talk about the the lineup, but but what I want to say about that, uh, Kyle, is. There was a real desire to bring the blues back to Eureka Springs. So when we uh, put put the call out to the to the community, the community answered the call, and that's how we have so many shows and so many stages. Is everybody wants the blues back in Eureka Springs? Excellent, Mary. Let's talk about some of the folks on the lineup. Yeah. Um, okay. So as you can see, we have a lot of shows. I can speak specifically to the ones that the Basin Park Hotel is hosting because that's my um, gig in all this. And I don't know if you noticed, it's more than just blues. It's um, blues, rock, and funk as well. So um, on Thursday night, we're going to kick off the festival with Red Oak Cruise, which is a local Eureka Springs band. Um, and then they're going to be opening for Lucas Parker Band with Jessica Page, and they are rocky. So it's going to be fun. We're going to kick it off with a bang. Um, and then um, at the on Friday, we have a VIP show with Earl and them um, earlier in the evening before the auditorium shows. Um, then the auditorium shows are the headliners. So that's Ray Wiley Hubbard and Marsha Ball. And then we'll move it back to the Basin Park Hotel for the ending the night with the Funk Factory out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. So really excited about the party they'll bring. Um, and then Saturday, we have a full lineup of music. Um, our headliners at the Basin Park Hotel on Saturday is Honey Island Swamp Band. Um, they're based out of LA, but they're, well, we're really excited. They're gonna be a little bit Rocky Blues and then ending the night with King Cabbage Brass Band 
really, really excited about them. They're a big fan feel, New Orleans style music. What I love about this lineup is you've got the local, right? Red Oak Ruse, Earl and them. Mm-hmm. But then you have the out-of-towners, but they still have this familiar, I mean, Ray Wiley Hubbard and Marsha Ball. I mean, they've been playing, you know, around the world for a while, but they've also got this, I don't know if you'd say they have roots here, but we love them here. And it just seemed unnatural to have those two on stage. Gina will talk a little bit about them, but I, I, I think we really should recognize Larry Schaefer uh, with Little Wing Productions. Larry brings a lot of music to Eureka Springs, uh, but when Mary and I were concepting bringing the blues party back, the blues back to Eureka Springs, we, we reached out to Larry Schaefer and asked him, this is, this is a, a year, year and a half ago, if he would uh, bring in headliners to the odd. Uh, we recognized that we could carry the Basin Park, but we needed a headliner. Um, and, and Larry, uh, without hesitation, said, if, if you do your side, I'll do my side. And that can be the foundation of, of bringing the blues back. So uh, Larry gets a lot of credit for that. And, and Gina is uh, behind the scenes promoting uh, uh, Larry's shows and, and uh, knows a little bit more about uh, the history there. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've both been um, around for five decades and they've, you know, they both are deeply rooted in blues. I mean, Ray Wiley also, you know, kind of covers country and Americana and, um, you know, even some rock, but, you know, they're well known by everybody in this area. They're both, you know, Southern uh, people. Ray Wiley's from Oklahoma originally and uh, Marsha's from Louisiana. So they're just, you know, from this area, we all know really well. So they were a perfect fit. And then the other um, piece that's I think important is uh, we have partnered with a, a really exciting uh, technology that's evolving in Northwest Arkansas uh, called the Stages app. Um, and Stages is going to be the uh, festival uh, app. Uh, uh, so everybody that comes, they won't have to carry around the big uh, blues guide and things like that. They'll be able to just uh, download the festival app and keep track of shows and times and tickets and uh, everything that needs to happen. But we'll we'll have tickets available on the day of the show. Uh, there will be shows that will hit capacity, so people should buy the show in advance, uh, especially some of the smaller venues, whether it's the uh, 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 the Grotto upstairs, which is bringing a blues review back, uh, which is traditional blues for the for the purist, uh, that'll be in the Grotto upstairs. Um, and you know, if they if they like a show, they should buy a ticket in advance. Jack Moyer, Mary Howes, and Gina Rambo talked with me about the upcoming Eureka Springs Blues Party last week. It all begins June 1st and will last through June 4th. Much more information at EurekaSpringsBluesParty.com. A Farmington listener shared, I am a new resident to Northwest Arkansas and new to KUAF, but not in PR. Listening to KUAF has been great for helping me become better acquainted with the area. Listeners from Bella Vista told us, after being a 35-year sustaining members of our local NPR station in Southern California, we've recently relocated back to Arkansas, and we're happy to move our membership to KUAF. We at KUAF hope this is true for you. As KUAF approaches June, we are marking 50 years on the air by raising $50,000 to keep this essential public radio service available to newcomers in our community, as well as those who are coming back home. Make your gift today at supportkuaf.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Waldron. Contributors to our show today included Jacqueline Froelich, Matthew Moore, and Wendy Echevera. The program was produced inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean, his most recent CD titled Still Here. Our underwriting director at 91.3 KUAF is Ryan Bercy. You can email him about underwriting options and information. His email address, ryan at kuaf.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. Talk to you tomorrow.